because you're jumping back into the gut. Oh, let's hey, go. Coach. Welcome to the Basketball Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Oliver. I appreciate you joining us for this week's podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit basketballimmersion.com for more coaching resources and access to all the basketball podcasts. I hope you will give us a shout out on social media, on Twitter at Bball Immersion, or on Instagram at Basketball Immersion to help me continue to share the game. Enjoy the episode. Get the best instructional coaching with ImmersionVideos.com. Are you looking to become a better coach? Then ImmersionVideos.com is the perfect solution for you. Their downloadable videos provide expert coaching from all over the world to help you develop the skills needed to take your coaching to the next level. Get all access practice and clinic footage from some of the best coaches in basketball, including Nate Oates, Tobin Anderson, Doug Novak, Mark Cassio, Dave Smart, Francisco Nanny, and more. Try ImmersionVideos.com today and become an even better coach. Awesome to welcome George Washington head coach Chris Caputo to the basketball podcast. In 2022-23, Caputo completed his first year as a head coach. Prior to being named head coach, his coaching career spanned more than two decades and took him to a Final Four and an Elite Eight of the NCAA tournament. Under his leadership, George Washington posted their best regular season in six years, enjoying the most overall wins, 16, most Atlantic 10 conference wins, 10, and the first Atlantic 10 winning record since the 2016-17 season. Caputo recorded the second most A-10 wins, 10, for a first-year GW bench boss in program history, and the fourth most overall wins, 16, in G-Dub's A-10 era. All five starters had career seasons. Caputo came to GW from the University of Miami, where he was the associate head coach under Jim Laranega since 2015. Chris, welcome back to the Basketball Podcast. Appreciate you having me back. When, when was my first one? Number 11 or 12? Or which one was it? So early, I don't even remember. remember. <laughs> but so much has happened in your life since then as well, including <laughs> becoming a head coach. And we had a great podcast back then. And obviously, you and I have stayed in touch and worked together and become friends and all the other stuff that goes with it. But coach, I got to ask, you prepared to be a head coach for a while. And I'll kind of ask this in three parts, but maybe let's start with the first one. In retrospect, what was the best preparation that you did in your time to be able to get you prepared to be a head coach? Obviously, my answer is going to be working for Coach Laranega. Really prior to that, too, playing college basketball for a really good college coach and Rich Sutter, who had been a Division I coach. And then prior to that, playing high school basketball for Jack Curran, who's a legendary figure in basketball and not only in New York, but really throughout the country as it relates to high school basketball. And not necessarily from the X's and O's standpoint, but just from their leadership, their ability to have an impact on people. And so they were good role models for me in terms of the macro piece of it, of of what, what, what really coaching is all about. And then obviously with Coach Laranega, kind of haven't been with him for 20 years. read years ago about the best managers sometimes are people who have been within the same company. They've had a lot of different jobs within that company. And then if they were to rise to a leadership position, they really understood uh, the, the, the business because they've done a lot within the business. And I felt that way working under Coach Lyonego to the point where I actually coached a couple of games when he was, wasn't feeling well. So I, I went from being the guy who really had no idea what was going on and was just there to lend a hand and try to add some value in 2002 
to somebody who was pretty involved in almost every decision that that got made within the program, or at least was privy to a lot of those decisions on a daily basis for a coach that's obviously a Hall of Fame coach and somebody who has just been so successful. So been been fortunate there. Absolutely. And uh, great influences throughout your career. Talk to us a little bit before I get to the second parts of those questions, because you kind of referenced it a little bit. I mean, this this wasn't your first interview. You had some other opportunities and there's many assistants in those positions. There's many other coaches in these positions where you don't get necessarily your first opportunity, your first job. What are some things that helped you keep the faith and keep the stick with itness to be able to keep going forward and obviously get your opportunity? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, it was, I've always felt like, and, and I know a lot of the stuff we talk about is technical in nature, but I think if we're thinking more big picture philosophy things, the idea that for me, becoming a head coach was not what the ultimate goal was. The ultimate goal was to really be a part of something that was bigger than than myself, to make an impact, to be a part of a program that was sustainable over time. It was not a one one year thing or a one player thing, but something that you could look back with a lot of pride on and and feel like, yeah, hey, I, I, whether I was the head coach or the associate head coach or the assistant coach or the video coordinator or whatever, that that I was part of something in college basketball was really valuable and things. So I look at the Miami program. I was able to leave it in a good place, right? We went to the Elite Eight when I left, and then they got rid of me, and they made the Final Four. So they got that figured out as I left. But when we took the job 12 years ago, I don't think people would be thinking of Miami as a second weekend program all the time, and yet two Sweet 16s, Elite Eight, a Final Four in in like 10 years or 11 years is pretty good. And then obviously the George Mason program was similar. So for me, I was maybe different than a lot of guys. I guess I'm I'm as ambitious as the next guy, but I uh, was more, I aspired to be a part of something. And so I was never discouraged when I had to go back to my job of which I really liked doing. Not everybody is as fortunate to feel that way, but but I was. And then again, I think when you're with good people, you like who you work with, you like who you coach, man, that, that, there's a lot to that in, in this business. You mentioned ambition and part of your passion, I know, is learning. One of the reasons we connected so well is just you're a voracious learner. So many different domains that you went into it wasn't just basketball, leadership, sports science, whatever it was. You were constantly learning. So I'm curious then, you know, obviously that helped prepare you for the head coaching job. Did you yeah. find you had less time once you became a head coach to dive into some of those things? Yeah, I think you, I, I think I, I lose sleep over it now. Like when you're trying to continue to do your best of of keeping up with things. And what's really important, I think, is that you hire a staff of people who are are that way as well, because then they can bring and filter a lot of those things to you. And I've been fortunate enough where I felt like we've had that in our staff and not just X's and O's, but it might be in recruiting or it might be in different areas of program where you have people that that are lifelong learners. And I think I heard somebody say one time, not not know-it-alls, but learn-it-alls is, is what we want. Yeah, but I, I definitely think it's it's different. You don't have quite as much of that time, right, to 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 dive in. It's got to be a lot of cliff notes going on. Well, and you banked a lot of knowledge and getting ready for it. So obviously that knowledge is there to a certain extent as well. Yeah. And we talked about you preparing to be a head coach. Kind of the second part of that was what maybe in your preparation to become a head coach did you now find was not as important 
that maybe you put a little bit of time in that now you realize, well, I shouldn't put that much time in. Is there something like that? That's a good question. I just think, I think, again, the way I, I don't know if this is the right way to answer this, but the way I went about it this year, I think if you hire the right people, which I believe I was able to do, in fact, I've already lost a couple of guys to, to, to good jobs because I think they were the right people for, for other people as well. If you're smart about it and they both have the right acumen and the right character, you don't have to have all the answers. And I, and I think that's important that for us, we are very collaborative as it relates to things. And so I like well-rounded. I like a diversity of experience in the office because I think they are the ones that can help me solve problems, which is ultimately what we all have to do, right, is to solve our problems on and off the court. And I, I think hiring a good staff, you you can you can really mess up a lot of things, but if you get the staff right, you know, it, it doesn't really matter that you mess those other things up. And the third part about this question is, what is what is something that maybe it's not possible to be as prepared for when you become a head coach? I knew this because I think, again, Coach Laranega was so inclusive in terms of everything. But I, I do think the loneliness mm. of feeling after a loss, that, that lonely feeling, even though you have a great staff, even though everyone's got the right intentions, they're trying to help, they have a lot of knowledge. Ultimately, as the head coach, when you have a disappointing loss, not 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 every loss, because sometimes you feel like, hey, we did our best, and maybe they made more shots, or you know, we had a we had a game in Hawaii where the officials missed a goaltend, they didn't blow the whistle, so they couldn't review it. And I remember, yeah, that 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 one stings, and you're pissed off, but you kind of feel like, hey, that's a good opponent. We basically played about as good as we could play, and had a couple of bad things happen, right? Two guys dive on a loose ball, and they don't get it, and and somebody else picks it up and. They make a three and they win the game. I, I, I felt like, hey, I'm really pissed off, but I don't feel like we didn't do everything. But when you have a bad loss, that that loneliness of feeling of like, hey, one, did I not do something that we I should have done? And then two, ultimately, this falls on me to fix. That's you can't. That's the one thing I don't think you can really be prepared for is that that feeling. Because as an assistant coach, you kind of just show up the next day with your list of things that you think we got to do better. But it's much more personal, I think, when you're the head coach. I couldn't agree more. And that's a struggle for all of us. And we talked a little bit about it throughout the year in terms of mental health and your well-being as a head coach. And and and, and this the struggle is real for all of us who have been a head coach. So I'm curious, did you find any kind of balance for yourself in terms of handling some of those things as a first-year head coach? Yeah, I think, again, it's prioritizing sleep and nutrition and things like that and trying to trying to distract yourself every once in a while with something outside of basketball is, is critical. And, and I was fortunate. I you know we had a good year, maybe not a great year, but we had a good year and, and I had good guys. I think the winning and losing is enough for your mental health. If you've got you got crazy guys in the locker room or something that that could that could really change it even in a negative way. So for me, I felt really good about coming to work every day. I heard John Calipari say this and I, and man, I think it's so true. And I've said it a number of times to people, you can have 
a bad deal with good people because things happen. Somebody gets hurt or some some circumstance out of out of our control. But you can never have a good deal with bad people. That never works. Any, anytime any of us think, hey, th- this, this is going to be good for me, even though I don't really trust these people, or even though those guys on the team, they've got some character issues, it never works. Such a great point and a great lesson for us all to listen to. And we're going to dive into the numbers a little bit and talk about some sure. of the improvements and some of the things that, that obviously were very successful this year. Um, let's start with, I think where it all starts a little bit with James Bishop and not just talking about him, obviously in terms of being an exceptional talent, but in terms of the challenge, and we talked about it throughout the year, the challenge of having someone who is so good (laughs) that basically it takes you out of kind of what we both would think is the way to run offense in a way and just getting more direct into the point and then finding that balance with now a team scouting and specifically trying to attack someone who is that good and that focused on your offense. And uh, before people think every one of your players improve their offensive efficiency, and we'll talk about that. But James Bishop was exceptional and uh, you you unleashed him. So let's talk a little bit about that balance. Yeah, I, I, I began to understand what Mike D'Antoni was doing in Houston where James Harden had the ball and then spread pick and rolls and they didn't pop it around quite quite enough for everyone's aesthetic liking. Exactly. The criticism becomes, (laughs) oh, you're not moving the ball or you're not everyone's touching the ball and all this other stuff. But meanwhile, Dan Antonio is the smartest guy in the room because he's just giving it to Harden and he's going to make something happen. We had a good thing for us is we we had our moments where we did pop it around pretty good and, and, and everything. But certainly for us, we felt like James and Brendan Adams with the ball we led our league in scoring. We were number we were one. The third, they were the third highest scoring duo in the country. Yeah, and they, and they they also shared it. They got assists as well. We were number one in efficiency from a lot of the year in our league offensively. And I would I think if I guess if you'd go back, we were probably number one against man to man defense for most of the year. There there were some things that we needed to do to adjust as people adjusted to us. But we still talked about 0.5. We still talked about making great decisions when we had the ball. We still talked about every catch is for a shot. We talked about getting off it when when punishing shifts. We talked about spacing and cutting. And but ultimately, but hey, James was such a good decision maker in pick and rolls. And so the more we could put him in, the quicker we could get in those. And then what started to happen is people really started to de- deny him. So you really had to free him. Once he had it, you had to get into action because of the way people were guarding him. If 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 you wanted to pop it around a little bit, he might never catch it. <laughs> you might spend half your time trying to attack a top block with him. And so that that balance was something that we were keenly aware of and, and wanted to to make sure that we, we understood it was a fine line. It was a fine line and it was fascinating to watch. And I thought you did a great job, you and your staff and him and doing a great job in balancing it as well. But there were times in the year where you feel like, wow, we should be doing something different, right? And we all go through that as a head coach. Oh, we should change this or we should change this. So what are the some of the things in your mind that would lead to you making a change versus you going through this analysis and now saying, no, no, no we're going to stick with this? 
Yeah, and we changed some things. I mean, just in terms of we had a patch in the league where we were scoring at such an incredible rate. And then we had a couple of halves where we were not very good. And what was consistent was the way in which people were defending James and Brendan. And as a staff, I think that was a really good head coaching experience for me is working through that solution with the group of trying to figure out, okay, one, should we change it all? We're, we're leading the league in scoring. We're leading the league in efficiency. We had a bad half. Let's evaluate the shots that we got and who shot them. And then at some point you start to say, yeah, th- this is now, this is now like three or four halves in a row like this. And then you had somebody come in and not play us that way. And we scored on them very, very well. And you're like, oh, maybe we're back to to what we were. Maybe there's no change needed. And then when you, again, you go back and watch and say, well, they didn't do to us what those other people were doing. And so we need to have a solution for that. And so we worked through those things as a staff. And without getting into too many details, I think then then some of those changes that we made late in conference play led us on a kind of four game winning streak in the league, a couple of really difficult road games as well. So yeah, I feel, I do feel good about that, that we were able to come up with a a solution within league play. Now I look back at it and feel like, man, I wish I would have thought of that a little bit earlier or what have you. Everyone just needs to listen to this and now they'll understand coaching. Like (laughs) number one in scoring and number one in efficiency. And you're thinking about making changes and it's absolutely the case. Because, again, you just want to be one step ahead as a coach, don't you? Yeah, and I I mean, I I learned that a little bit. You know, in my time in Miami, we became friends with Coach Bo, and he had said something to me that stuck with me one time about his early time, and and particularly in the Big Three era, when he felt like instead of, like, doing what we do because I have the best roster, quote-unquote, he felt like, Hey, I need to be not reactive and on my heels, but I need to be the person that people are adjusting to. And so that's always stuck with me a little bit, that conversation. And again, this year, there were a lot of things that we didn't do well that we were really trying to get better at all the time. But there is a little bit of nervousness when you are good at something statistically, and yet you can see that it's not sustainable to stay this way, that there's going to be, there's going to have to be some things that we do differently. Absolutely. And uh, we're going to dive into some of the numbers and talk about some of the things that maybe led to some of these changes. But like we'll use Brendan Adams, Brendan Ann Adams as an example in terms of shooting improvement. And uh, the numbers are are, are what they are. But to like just consider it to be improvement from three point percentage, 20. I think he increased 10 percent from 27 to 37 percent. Dribble pull ups from like (laughs) 35 percent to 55 percent to second in the NCA, different things like that. So. I'm curious what 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 it's not just system, it's not just player development. What are some other things that help connect with a player like that in your first year? Yeah, I mean, I know it's funny. I Coach Larnega was a very good coach of shooting, I think, better than most. And I learned a lot from him. I learned a lot from Rob Foder, who I know you had on on the podcast. Mike Dunn is another guy, Dave Love, spent some time around Chip England. So like a lot of I, I used to joke that I'm not a shot doctor, but I study the shot doctors. It's and I probably know enough now to be dangerous, but but I do think it's important. Like and in Brendan's case, guy who 
we really liked a lot. He's a great kid. He's a, a very hard worker, excellent student. His comes from a basketball family. His brother played in the NBA and high level international basketball. And yet, yet and played for really good. Played for played for Dan Hurley. Played for Jamie Christian. Like guys. And yet, he just never shot thirty percent from three. And at some point in the summer, you're like, well, we're either going to just not do anything and hope, or could we make them any worse in terms of percentage over a long sample size? So he just decided to make a couple of adjustments, one in his balance, another one kind of in his hand position and, and his, I guess, his readiness of, of where his hand was on the ball and, and his wrist. And, and you combine what I thought was a sound plan for those technical changes with a, a big work ethic. And I think a tactical offensive system that benefited him. And here you go. I think he made, I'm right, 81 in 107 games in his career. And then this year he made 74 threes in, in like 32 games. And the pull-up goes up 20%. The three-point percentage goes up 10%, which we all know is, those are big numbers in a, in a, in a one-year situation. Really big so, numbers. Yeah. yeah. So I was really proud of him. There's a lot of the work that he was able to put in, but he was such a willing worker. And I don't think you can, I don't think you can make those changes without a guy really willing to work at it and, and being comfortable with it. Yeah. In the absence of like, none of this matters. In the absence, there's a lot of guys that shoot 25% that are like, don't mess up my shot. Yeah. Like don't mess with my shot. No, he was open-minded, but again, this is consistent throughout your program in your first year that a bunch of players improved, obviously improved their offensive efficiency. So related to shooting. So not just shot doctor knowledge, also talk a little bit about how system of play help players in terms of freeing them up for a higher percentage or more efficiency. Yeah, I mean, I, again, I think the spacing that we tried to create, the ability to create that spacing in transition to conceptually help them understand that we wanted the ball to hit the paint before it went up, that the more, you know, we could get the ball in the paint. I think... The other side of this is too is our big guys to their credit while they were not three-point shooters they were very capable finishers i thought our staff taught the pick and roll game pretty well in terms of like hey here's your reads versus certain coverages got them comfortable in the short roll got got them comfortable rolling below behind the defense when necessary those reads were, were critical. And I think you see guys, our front court guys, two-point percentages were very, very strong because of it. So I, as much as people, I think, like James and Brendan were able to take and make some difficult shots, there's no question. I also think if you look at some of the other guys, they have really, really high finishing rates at the basket. That when we were able to get to the basket, yes, we allowed mid-range shots, but when we were able to get to the basket, they were very, very open. And the threes were reasonably good for each guy. Hey, coach, brief interruption from our podcast. Are you ready to take your coaching to the next level? Thousands and thousands of coaches have already benefited from Basketball Immersion's membership community, and you can be next. Join us as an individual coach or take advantage of our exclusive pricing for staff or club members and unlock valuable learning resources with access to cutting edge basketball and coaching concepts that will save you time and improve your coaching and your players' enjoyment of practices and games. Take advantage of this opportunity today. 
go to www.basketballimmersion.com. So 11th in the country in two-point percentage. So you mentioned allowing two-point shots, but it wasn't just allowing two-point shots. It was you were encouraging two-point shots when they were open and efficient, maybe with one exception, obviously, James Bishop's just ability to create his own shot. But most of them were playing off of action, and you referenced ball screen. What were some other ways that they played off of action to be able to create those two-point shots? Yeah, I mean, I think we we built a little bit of a of a hybrid where we played five out, and yet we didn't have three point shooting at the four or five, which was a struggle at times, wasn't it? Oh, I think I think it, again, you talk about things that you as a as a, as a first time head coach, one of the learning curves is, hey, this is how we like to play for these reasons. This is how we like to play based on the players we have, and then sort of putting that together. And then trying to look at like, hey, we want to play with great spacing, and yet we don't have great shooting necessarily at the four five. And so, how do you do that? And how do how do you manipulate defenses, coverages, spacing, what have you, to get to that point? And again, I'm, we're still learning, just like everybody else. Like, hey, what are some things that we maybe could even have done better with that? Well, the challenge a little bit is that you wanted to create this style of play for future, and but the current reality was you couldn't do everything you wanted to do, right? Yeah, no, I think there's things you got to keep off the table based on your personnel. And, and yet, again, I think that, that things that don't change, right, are like spacing, being able to read defenses and, and, and have coverage solutions being able to play unselfishly, the ball hitting the paint, those things don't really change. And so how do you get there with your personnel, creating some double gaps for the guys who are good drivers if you don't have a post-up game, creating a good cutting game if you don't have necessarily a great post-up game or a, a dominant driver or what have you. Like we, I thought we did a good job making and labeling our cuts to some degree where then guys we would stop the video and say hey what what probably should have happened here on this penetration they would be able to name the cut that that needed to happen and so i again i feel good about what we were able to create and and, and it really where you start i think that's another thing i learned where you start in the summer and even in the preseason you should really be at a totally different place in in terms of the end of the season, right? Because you get better, you, the players get better, you see things, things create themselves, and then you add them. And, and so that, that you're having to evolve as a group and you're having to evolve against the defenses you see. So you mentioned short roles, playing with a, a non-shooting, non-three-point shooting big, so short roles. You mentioned yeah. cutting. Is mm-hmm. there anything else, I mean, especially talking about secondary actions, about them getting into secondary yeah. actions because they're not going to shoot it? Can you talk a little bit about yeah, that? Yeah, I mean, just trying to create action at both the four and five when neither of them are necessarily great three-point shooters. And what are you doing with the other guy? Is he in the dunker? And are you then hopping off that second action? Or are you rolling and lifting? Or are you rolling and sealing? Are you rolling and flaring? What do you do with those guys? <laughs> is, right. is, and it, it, it's, not, it's not necessary that you have 
four or five shooters on the floor, but certainly, as Chris, like, hey, we're, we're, we all talked 15 years ago about a stretch four. Now, yeah, like everyone's got a stretch now, <laughs> stretch five. Yeah. Right. When I'm at Miami my last year and we're playing five out and very free flowing with Sam Mordenberg and Jordan Miller at the five and four, and we'll put five three point shooters. Our solution that year, if we were being iced or in any sort of drop with an ice, I mean, we just pop Sam Wardenberg, throw it back to him, and he shot. We would tell him going into games, hey, listen, Sam, tonight you're going to really have to shoot early, right? Like they're just going to be dropped. They, they, they want to keep us on the side. We're going to take two, throw it back to you. You're going to get some top of the key threes. And when you're doing that at the five, schematically makes it a little bit easier. When you can't do that at the four or five, you got to spend some time about what to do, how you're creating action, and what are you doing with the other guys? Absolutely. The fun part of coaching, finding the solution. <laughs> That's awesome. I, I know we're aligned on this, but let's talk from the other perspective a little bit. We're aligned on playing offense versus defense in practice and competing and doing these different things that help your players get better at decision making and competing however what and because we talked about this a little bit through player development and through team development what might be some challenges in playing a lot of offense versus defense throughout player development sessions or throughout team development sessions yeah i i think we've talked about this already. the one thing i've always felt like and this might just be from the division one being a high major assistant for a long time or being at a pretty mid-major plus high major minus level at the other. Like I never felt like when we were trying to get, if we were playing against each other, that's fine, right? You want to play offense or you want to compete. If we were trying to work on something, it was always hard to get the other guys to do something very specific and so at our level, we have more bodies, assistant coaches or what have you, managers, like you could kind of get those guys out there doing exactly, hey, we're going to drive a baseline every single time. Hey, you're going to run this action and get to the second action so that we can defend the second action. I don't know. I, I just, it was always hard to get the guys to do that if, it, if they didn't think it was like our stuff, you know? Which, which is something we've talked about, and that's the reason that you would add managers or coaches or different Bones people on the floor yeah. to be able to create those perception decision situations, right? Yeah. And again, we, I know we're at a luxury at the places I've been recently where we can do that, but I, I really think it's important in terms of, again, about bones over cones, creating decisions, reading closeouts obviously is one of the most important things any player can do. Making decisions where you're reading a closeout, getting in the paint, spraying it out, relocating, reading the next close. I mean, that's the game, right? Re reading, reading a drive in terms of on defense. Hey, you, you, hey, I, how much help should I give? What's appropriate here? Guarding the ball. How many times have you tried to do a one-on-one -on -one drill with your players and you really want the guy to really guard somebody who's trying to take the ball to the paint and our own player shoots a pull-up. And you're like, yeah, no, I get it. Like, you're going to have to guard that and get a hand up for that too. But really, I'm trying to practice guarding our yard here, right, and trying to keep the ball in front of us. And so 
I'm probably spoiled. I know it's hard for high school coaches and other coaches maybe where they don't have quite as much help. But I think the more you can create those situations within player development, workout type situations, I think the better. And then certainly as the season goes on, you do just, you have to play. We're going to play five on five full court every day and as as much as we can. I mean, even if it's, we got to the point where late in the season, even if we're playing like a three minute game or something, just the fact that we went up and down, I don't know if there's any science behind it, but it made me feel better that we went up and down. Yeah, it would make me feel better too. And you mentioned that part about the high school players. And I find that, and I know this, that I find that the high school players are more willing to do it for each other because they see both sides as helping them get better and part of that. Uh, And even something as simple as BDT hand signals, say hands up, hands down. College to NBA players, less likely to want to do that because they get in the habit of having someone else be able to do it. I want to help them. Yeah, no. Yeah, and, and it's not wrong. It's just different. And that's one of the, and I'm so glad you got into this because you highlighted some of the challenges of using guided repetitions to be able to develop perception and into action and different things around that. So offense, we've talked about, we'll keep coming back to offense, but talk to me a little bit about the balance then, because it's not that you don't want to be good on both sides of the ball. You do, right? But now, to a we, certain we, extent, we you have to make- We're not very this- good defensively. And yeah. it was very funny midway through the league play and we're we're leading our league in scoring and efficiency. And I, I was in some press conferences and I was like, guys, we're spending 80% of our time on defense right now, trying to get better defensively. So as much as we're playing good offense, got to give the credit to the players there and their willingness to do what we were trying to do. But we, we were challenged. It was frustrating. The on eight scholarship players had some mismatched parts in terms of the defensive ability and versatility. So it was frustrating. And, and as, as I've said, you can play as fast as your defense allows. And I also don't know of an offense that's better where you have to take it out. It's, it's much better when you can take it off the backboard or, or off a turnover. Your offense can be better by, by virtue of, of just the numbers. So that, that was frustrating. But every if we were a good team, not a great team, and usually there's going to be something you're going to have to fix. For every season, for every year, for yeah. the rest of our lives coaching, there'll be something we have yeah. to fix for sure. Yeah. So so saying that a little bit, then going into this offseason, so you've had this first year, you've had success, certainly building in the right direction. How do you evaluate then what you need to focus on? Let's let's assume, let's not talk about the roster, because obviously we know that situation for most college coaches is in flux. But in terms of building with what you have right now, what are some decisions that go into that? Yeah, I think. The first thing defensively throughout my years going back, it's funny. I mean, some of it starts in the weight room, like that the idea that like physical, the first step to physical toughness is physical fitness, right? And I think physical fitness that leads to physical toughness that will lead to better defenders as players, to some, or at least they can max themselves, right? as best they can be individually based on their gifts. And then with better individual defenders, uh, there, there were no different drills that we did this year that we did we did when we had Bruce Brown at, at Miami and, and watching him last night blocking Kevin Durant's shot. And I'm saying, I'm pretty sure we didn't teach him that. I think he was, he was just good at those things. So. Yeah. But he, so I think that's the first thing. 
I think the second thing certainly is you look at your preparation, you know, what what could we have done? We changed pick and roll coverages kind of midway through the year. And while statistically, I don't think you could certainly look, show it to me and say, hey, you didn't get any better. I, I think what it did is it actually allowed us to be a little bit better, to be a little bit closer, to give ourselves a little bit more of a chance. And so from that perspective, maybe looking at our roster, if it were similar, if I went back a year, could we have started with that? I don't know the answer to that, maybe. But so, I, but, but you I, but, might have taken away from something by doing that too. So it's it's such a hard kind of question to answer. I understand. It's easy to go backwards, right? It's easy right. to go back and say, "See, if we had done that, we would have won this game and this game." It's 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 hard to say. I mean, I think I do think. Look, you you have to spend time, and the players have to think that the defense is important, right? And you have to have two way players, and you have to sell that to them as to why this is important. And then also you do have to have the requisite amount of bodies, roster, speed, size, athleticism to uh, to be good defensively, especially in this day and age with all the skill that's out there. Absolutely. Can you give us a perspective? I mean, from the ACC, now the A-10, give us a perspective on what changes when you get into those league games in terms of the specificity of scout or the way teams know you better what are some of the different things that become heightened when you move into a conference season yeah i think there's no question in in non-conference play especially teams maybe outside your region where you you may not have even recruited any of the players on their team or you you have Certainly all the video and data, Ken Palm, Synergy, all that that's available. And yet, until you see those guys live, it's just hard. Once you get in league play, everything is just ramped up. And then certainly if you play a team a second and third time, it's that chess match begins. And I, I think that's where... You're you're trying to anticipate, okay, what worked for us last time, what worked for them last time, what have they been watching? If I were them, what would I do? Those type of things come into play. And that, that is the fun part for us as coaches sometimes to that preparation, that chess match is is a fun thing. And in college basketball, with an opponent, you might do that one time, right? The second time you play them maybe a third time in conference tournament play. But I, I think we all marvel at the NBA coaches because they're doing this X amount of times during the season. And now you go into these playoff series. It's incredible how, how many adjustments are being made. And most of them we're not even aware of. A hundred percent, yeah. Despite what the media may think. Right. You, you referenced the pick and roll success and quality of your staff and yourself in teaching pick and roll. Obviously, we referenced some of your players that are outstanding in pick and roll, but maybe maybe give us some perspectives on how, if we run pick and roll as a coach, how we can improve our pick and roll efficiencies. You ran the fourth most pick and rolls in the country and you're top 10% in country in pick and roll efficiencies. So talk to us a little bit about some different ways that you can attack it in practice to be able to improve pick and roll efficiency. Yeah, I think we did a good job with doing some whole part whole, doing a lot of doing a lot of individual work with guys on on some things in terms of 
using, refusing, coverage solutions, getting guys to get their defender to the level of the screen, working with the screener on screening low and staying low, but then bringing the group together and, 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 and trying to mix it up where our bigs and our guards were together, learning to play with each other against coverage, I thought was, was good for us. And then that might be two on two, but then also adding others, right? Bringing a, a third guy in uh, and that guy being spaced or cutting off penetration or cutting off a short roll or things like that. So from that perspective, I thought we did a good job with that. And then obviously doing it every single day back in the five on five setting where you were truly whole part whole, I, I thought was important. I learned we had a good saying this year. Matt Colpoise, who's our sort of director of recruiting slash video coordinator, he had kind of come from the John Beeline tree. And one of the things about playing against the drop, where it's you start to see the drop more in college, he the the screener, I think we talked about this, Chris, the screener would run up. And again, we want him to screen low and, and, and stay low. And against the drop, you want him to get a piece of the defender. And you would want the setup to be good by the guard. And so the screener would actually yell, wait, wait, wait. And the wait, wait, wait was really for the guard. Like, hey, set your guy up. Wait, wait, wait with the ball. Let me screen. Let me get set. Let me get a piece of the defender. And let's not just try to come off this thing before I get up there against the drop. We want the defender to get hit, whereas against maybe a a blitz or a hard show where we want to quickly advance the ball, but we're not as concerned with that. Yeah, yeah, that was a great teaching point when you shared that with me. That that totally made sense in terms of giving a cue to be able to hold it, give time for the readjustment. As we talk about, we talk about changing angles, all these different things, and it's yeah. like, it's easy in principle, but the reality is how do you actually do that? So that's such a great yeah. point. Yeah. Increasing tempo, which is another part of what you did this year. You increased your team's tempo quite a bit. Is it as simple as style of play, or what are some other factors that go into taking over a program yeah. and trying to increase tempo? And again, we, we might we may have played a little too fast for my liking based on our defense. I would like our defense to be better because, I, again, then I really like playing. Explain anyway. that to us. Well, I just think, again, like throughout the years, I think mistakes have been made by coaches whose teams played very fast, but their defenses weren't good enough. So they get scored on, and then you come up and shoot quick. Like, I don't like that, right? And yet, we were the most efficient. Our last year at Miami, my last year, we were the most efficient transition team in the Power Five. We never talked about playing faster tempo. We did get stops, or we also led our league in turning people over. So if you turn people over, you're going to be very efficient a lot of times in the open court. So you'd really like to get better defensively and and and, and, and allow us to get more efficient, but we did try to play with a pace. I think our spacing probably allowed for us to play fast, right? Because those driving angles were open earlier because of the spacing. And then I think the other thing, quite honestly, is when you have somebody that's getting trapped a lot, like our guards late in the year, and it's it's out of that trap and we're triggered, right? The, the, the trigger happens almost by uh, not by our doing. We're not triggering the action, but somebody's chasing us quickly off a of pick and roll. And now the trigger is, has stopped. And now you're playing advantage basketball, maybe very early in a possession. 
Well, I love that example there, the trigger part of it, because again, this is what I say to some coaches sometimes is like getting more direct to your action can increase your pace, obviously, especially if you get the right person in that direct action, because yeah. the defense is going to react and create dominoes or an advantage or whatever it may be. So that's such a great point that you just made in terms of that and shifting, I guess, a little bit to kind of the bigger picture of this for, for coaches that are moving into new situations, new programs and stuff like that. How do you approach this concept of establishing your identity with your players and your staff in your first year? Culture, identity, psychological safety, all these words kind of belonging, et cetera. What are some things that you do? Because you can't do it all right away and you can't do it all in a big meeting, can you? No, I think the first thing you, you have to do is assess where everything is. Certainly, I think the biggest thing is you got to be yourself. Whatever it is, if you're not you, the players are going to see through that very quickly. And I just think that's a critical part to this thing. Like with the guys that I've coached throughout the years, they just know. They know when you're you're, you're they know when it's a shtick, and they know when you're being genuine. I think that's one of Coach Larnega's great strengths is he's him every day and i think the players know that and they also know that he's in it for them like that that it's about them and not him and so the the advice to everybody is like hey we got to have an overarching culture goals way of doing things every day but ultimately everybody's got to be themselves i'm not we're not i think you can very quickly make a mistake and it just because you admire somebody doesn't mean that you try to behave like them because if it's not you players are going to see the difference very quickly and i think guys are good about they they know who's trying to manipulate them versus who's trying to guide them chris amazing grateful to have you back on the podcast and uh, to share all your insights now as a head coach and i encourage coaches to go back and listen to your one as an assistant coach Great information throughout. It was, a, it was an honor to be able to work with you and your staff this year as well, and just tremendous to be able to be a part of it. Congrats on all the success, and thanks for joining us. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, Chris. What was it like to work with Chris Oliver as a con consultant this year? Yeah, I, for me, I, I think Chris was invaluable to our success, especially starting off as a first-time head coach. You certainly are going to lean on your staff and, and your mentors and people that you've worked with before. But to have somebody who obviously is highly, highly knowledgeable, but also could be a sounding board, could take a, a different view that wasn't necessarily in the building every day, that was going to do this from a non-biased uh, opinion and to, to, to watch film, to have conversations it was just extremely valuable as a as a first-time head coach and i think for any head coach going forward so for me it was a no-brainer i'm so glad we did it we took a lot from it early on and throughout the season and certainly we'll be doing that going forward thanks for listening be sure to rate review and subscribe to the show and to give the basketball podcast and this week's guest a shout out on social media to show your support for us sharing the game and to stay up to date on all things Basketball Immersion, subscribe to our newsletter at basketballimmersion.com newsletter.